We're going to continue in our series, A Walk with Christ Through the Cross, this morning. And uh, last week, just in, in reminder, we covered a couple stages in his walk. And you might want to think of these as different scenes in a play. I mean, we've all gone to see those uh, Easter dramas and resurrection dramas. And, and uh, at times, uh, they, they have certain scenes that they're portraying. And that's kind of how we're going through this series and so we're taking a compilation of the Gospels, a harmony of the Gospels, they call it, and kind of presenting it to you in that way. And so there's various scriptures there listed in your notes, but don't try to turn to every one and you'll go crazy. So, uh, but last week we looked at the sorrow of the Last Supper, and we saw how Judas was uh, reached out to, and how Christ made every effort to give him an opportunity to repent and to turn to Christ, and and unfortunately, Judas didn't listen to that, and, and he went through with his devious plan and was actually filled by Satan himself, the Bible tells us. And uh, we learned from that that nobody can manipulate Jesus, even though Judas thought he was trying to manipulate Jesus, and no one can fool Jesus. You may be sitting here this morning and think that everything's okay, but you've never come to faith in Christ, and your, your heart is still dark with sin, and you have yet to renounce your own rights and your own self and come to the cross and, and fall before the Savior uh, in need. And I would encourage you, that's what God uh, wants from you. That's what He desires. But uh, you may be sitting here in church this morning with a heart as uh, black as coal because of its sin. It hasn't been washed in the blood of Christ. And I encourage you that Christ even today still calls out to us to come to Him and to repent and to lay our lives before Him. And we also learn, thirdly, that a loving Christ reaches out to men to the very end. At any time, Christ could have said, Ah, you know what, I'm not going to continue this charade. But He continued to reach out to uh, Judas through the uh, whole process. And then we looked at the agony that He went in through in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, probably on Thursday, about 11.30 to 1 a.m. And uh, we could see where He encouraged His disciples to help him in prayer and, and they couldn't do it. Um, they just fell asleep and, and uh, the agony of that whole thing, basically the Bible says that Christ was in such agony, such turmoil because he knew what was going to face him, humanly speaking, that he sweat great drops of blood. And that's actually a medical condition that causes, that's caused when you're so stressed out that your capillaries break and, and they intermingle with your, your sweat glands and, and blood can actually come out of your pores. And that's how troubled he was at that point. And so tonight, or to this morning, we come to uh, his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, there's various scriptures listed there. And like I said, this is probably happening, and these are just time frames, you know, Friday of this week between 1 and 1.30 a.m. And uh, Judas obviously went through with his betrayal. Judas and the arresting officers already had worked out their signals and how Judas would identify uh, Christ to them in a crowd because it was dark. They didn't, couldn't really know their way around that well and they needed someone who was intimately acquainted with Judas or with Christ and Judas was that person. And so uh, they figured out a plan. The plan was basically that Judas would find Christ and he'd go up to him and he would kiss him. How remarkable is that? And so when Christ saw Judas in the crowd, and you can imagine the quietness of this garden being disrupted by these many people that were coming, um, he didn't try to run away. 
he didn't try to resist. Even though it was totally unjust, he calmly walked toward them, the Bible says. And it really gave an indication that he was in charge here. The Lord, God's Son, was in charge. And he was willing to let Judas do his evil deed. But it's interesting, the Scripture tells us before Judas could begin to cover him with kisses, and that's the idea, he just didn't go up and you know give him a little smooch on the cheek. The idea is that he, he lavished him with kisses. You can see the hypocrisy of this whole thing. And before that could happen, he went up and probably caught Judas off guard. And he spoke to Judas. And the Bible says that he called him friend. He says, friend, for what purpose have you come? Interesting to think that this is the man who's betraying you. This is the man who's filled with Satan. And yet Jesus still has the calmness and the compassion to reach out to this sad individual, Judas. And he says, friend, for what purposes have you come? And Jesus was still calling Judas his friend and his companion, even as Judas approached him to carry out this awful act. And you notice that Judas refused to answer Christ's question. He didn't answer it. But he proceeded on with his charade, his act, you might say. And he yelled out a friendly greeting, Hail, Master! Then he started kissing Jesus all over the neck in the face. And Jesus was probably, no doubt, at this point, very saddened in his heart, very dismayed by Judas's action. And so he asked Judas a question. And this question was probably the question that was going to haunt Judas until his suicide later on. And he asked, Jesus asked Judas this question, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Jesus, in his calmness and in his power, he overwhelmed this crowd. And stepping around Judas, Jesus walked up to the crowd of the Jewish leaders, the policemen and the Roman soldiers there, and he was neither terrified nor was he angry. He was in complete control of his faculties. He was ready to face whatever would befall him that night. The Gospels tell us that Jesus asked the crowd a simple question. Whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And he announced, I am he. And upon hearing this, it says, the crowd drew back and fell to the ground. Now, there's a lot of speculation on why that happened. We don't really know. It could have been the way Christ looked. It could have been just the, the full majestic power of that moment. It could have been the bold tone of his voice. We don't know. Whatever it was, it overwhelmed this crowd that came to arrest him. And it says that they retreated and they fell to the ground as though they had been struck by lightning. Apparently, they regained their composure and Christ asked them once again, like I said, who do you seek? And once more, they replied, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus assured them that he was this Jesus of Nazareth. He didn't try to run. He didn't try to hide. And I think next, Jesus made a most loving request to the arresting officers on behalf of his disciples. He loved these men. And he pointed out to them, if you're seeking me, well, let these go away. Don't worry about these guys. 
here was Judas under tremendous pressure, still looking out, or Jesus was under tremendous pressure, still looking out for and protecting the disciples that he loved. It's amazing. Right to the end, he was in complete control. And yielding to Christ's demand, the arresting officers let the disciples go free. Jesus' ability to get his men set free could have really been what saved their lives. They probably would have been executed along with Jesus. See, we need to see here that Christ voluntarily was a prisoner. No one took this from him. He gave this up. And in, in the following accounts in the Gospels, Mark or Matthew 26 and Mark 14 and Luke 22, it even gets more dramatic. Now just read these compilation of these different Gospels. Then they came and they laid their hands on Jesus and they seized Him. Now when those standing about Him saw what would follow, they said to Him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And behold... Simon Peter stretched out his hand and drawing his sword, struck the high priest's bondman or slave and cut off his right ear. And the name of the bondservant was Malchus. But Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. And Jesus said therefore to Peter, Put back your sword into its sheath, for all who take the sword perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot call to my Father and He will furnish me with twelve legions of angels? But how then would Scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Needless to say, Christ would have never been arrested or crucified unless He had voluntarily allowed it to happen. Incredible. It's clearly seen as you continue in the story. Mark, Matthew 26 and Mark 14. As soon as Jesus had told the crowd, this is your hour and the power of darkness. You notice what his disciples did at that point. It says they panicked and they fled. They thought this is actually going to happen. This is for real. We've got to get out of here. It says then all the disciples forsook him and fled. And a certain young man was following with him, having only a linen cloth about his body. And the young man, men laid hold of him, but leaving behind the linen cloth, he fled from them naked. So here you have Jesus alone in the garden. He allowed his enemies to tie him up, to lead him away, to face a long night of cruel treatment and ultimately crucifixion the next day. The last view of Jesus in these accounts... You find him bound in ropes. You're sure that the only thing that was really binding him was not the ropes himself. He could have broke those in a second. But was his love for us. And his determination to carry out the Father's will. About 1.30 a.m., after he suffered this kind of humiliation of this arrest in the garden, it even gets worse. You see that basically there's a lot of injustices that are going to occur in the next few hours in the life of Christ. Judas had covered him with all these traitorous kisses. The army had arrested him as if he was a fugitive. And now we see him go through this exhausting night-long trial that followed his arrest. 
And it's, it's like I said, it's filled with just terrible injustices. And it lasts until the early hours of the next morning, Friday. And basically, it includes six stages. We're not going to go over all six. But the first three is when Jesus appeals, appears before the Jewish leaders. The last three are when he has to stand up before the Roman authorities. His unjust trial and the way he was going to be treated had only just begun. The first person he appears before is Annas. The Gospels tell us that Jesus was led away, led away to face Annas. And the band of soldiers, therefore, and the chief captain and the officers of the Jews seized Jesus and bound him, and they led him away first to Annas, where he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had given counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. <coughs> so the high priest questioned Jesus <coughs> according to his disciples in teaching. Jesus answered him. Here's what he said. <coughs> I spoke openly to the world. Always I taught in the synagogues and in the temple where the Jews all assemble, and I said nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard me as to what I have said to them. Behold, they know what I said. Now at this saying, these officers, one of the officers standing by, Jesus struck him with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest though? And Jesus answered him, If I spoke wrongly, bear witness of the wrong, but if I rightly... Why do you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So those who had seized Jesus led him away and brought him into the high priest's house where all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes had gathered together. Who was this Annas? Who was this guy? To understand, <coughs> basically, he had a severe hatred for Jesus. He didn't like Jesus at all. Israel at that time was ruled by the Romans, you remember. And the Romans were ruthless tyrants, and, and they, they always basically uh, gave a certain amount of religious freedom to the religious leaders to run the country. But overall, the political leader of the Jews was the high priest. And normally a high priest ruled for life, but the Romans, they changed that. And usually they allowed a high priest to rule only for a few, few years. And he had been the high priest for 16 years, and then he was removed from office. But he continued to work closely with the Romans, and basically he chose five of his sons at different times to serve as high priest. So it's all kind of in the family, you might say. And when Christ was arrested, Caiaphas was the high priest. Now, he wasn't a son, he was a son-in-law. So there's this important relationship of the family going between these two men. And his power was so great that many of the Jews still called him the high priest, even though he wasn't literally the high priest. He was very cold. He was very arrogant. He was a greedy man. He came from an extremely back, extremely rich background. And what he did is he operated all those businesses in the booths uh, in the temple, which were all corrupt. And so when Jesus went in and he cleaned out the temple, that just ticked this guy off more. And so he really had a problem with our Lord. And it may have been Annas himself who set up 
the arrest with Judas and the soldiers. We don't know. But no doubt he was glad to see Jesus bound and standing before him. You can imagine just the, the hatred this man had toward him. And on the night of Jesus' trial, the Jewish leaders were confronted with this dilemma. How could they put Jesus to death? That's what they wanted. See, the Romans did not allow the Jews to practice capital punishment without their approval. They couldn't just go out and kill somebody. The Romans had to approve it. And putting him to death without a valid cause would likely cause all the common people to riot. So they had to assemble some kind of fast trial with phony charges against uh, Jesus in order to get a guilty verdict against him. And this would make it possible for them to deliver their prisoner in the early morning to Pilate, which would happen, the Roman governor, for execution. And so by questioning Jesus himself, he was hoping that Christ would somehow incriminate himself. But the Jewish leaders basically broke all their laws when they tried Christ. As a matter of fact, for example, Jewish law stated that it was illegal to hold a trial at night. Interesting. But the Jewish leaders were so desperate to have Christ condemned, they just ignored it. And so he starts his ter- interrogation with Christ. And in the uh, Gospel of John, we read some of this. It says, So the high priest questioned Jesus concerning his disciples and his teaching. He wanted to know if Christ's disciples were revolutionaries who wanted to topple the government. And the high priest also wanted to know if Christ's teachings was full of lies or he blasphemed against God, something like that. And Christ's response to him was so powerful and majestic, he spoke and he replied, he said, I spoke openly to the world always. I've taught in the, the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews assemble. And I said nothing in secret. Why do you question me now? Question those who have heard me as to what I've said. Behold, they know what I said. See, Christ knew he was facing an unfair trial. And what Jesus did is he turned the tables on this man and he began to question him. He ignored the first question that the man asked because it was common knowledge that his disciples were not revolutionary, so he just kind of dismissed that. He answered the second question by calling him to legal order. See, according to Jewish law, the accused must not be asked any questions which would bring self-incriminating answers at this point. Furthermore, a prosecutor was not permitted under Jewish law to summon witnesses against the accused until the witnesses for the accused had spoken. So at Jesus' trial, no witnesses were called to speak in his defense at all. And if he had really wanted to know what Jesus had taught, he could have easily summoned some of these witnesses and asked them because he was teaching openly in the synagogue. And so Jesus displays this calm authority and this directness The Gospel of John, once again, tells us, Now at his sayings, these things, now at his saying these things, one of the officers standing by Jesus struck him with the palm of his hand, saying, Why do you answer? uh, Do you answer the high priest so? Jesus answered, If I spoke wrongly, bear witness of the wrong, but if I am right, why do you strike me? See, for the first time in that long night, this was the first time Jesus was literally physically attacked. And this was just the beginning just the brink of the iceberg that was about to crush him. See, the officer thought that he was was speaking disrespectfully. And by the way, that act of the officer was also illegal. It was against Jewish law to punish the accused before he had been proven guilty. So you weren't allowed to carry out any kind of a physical punishment. 
And when Jesus responded by asking him that question, if I spoke wrongly, he was pointing out his legal right to answer the way he did. See, at the same time, his response emphasized the fact that there was absolutely no cause for him to be slapped. And it didn't take long for this guy to see that he wasn't going to get anywhere and that Christ was not going to self-incriminate himself. So he sent him on to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, the court. Now this court consists of about 75 men and they need a quorum of at least 25. Now remember, this is not, you know, in the middle of the afternoon. We're talking in the middle of the morning here. So you can imagine, they, they met at Caiaphas' house. By the way, when we were over there, we were actually in, in the house of Caiaphas. And we actually got to go down into this one portion where um, there's actually a uh, kind of a holding cell. And they literally believe that may have been where Christ was held during all this time. They met at Caiaphas' house in the middle of the night to begin this kind of wicked trial of Jesus, hoping to make the trial look legal by the time the sun came up. So the Sanhedrin, they gathered and they, they did some motions of, legitimate, of kind of making this legitimate or illegitimate hearing legitimate. And Jewish law demanded that at least two eyewitnesses agree on the charges brought against the defendant. But see, they had a problem. They hadn't even formulated a charge. He was hauled in the car. There's no charge against him. And so he's there in this environment and they're trying to put him to death and they don't have anything to charge him. So the Bible says that they acted in a most disgraceful manner. They, they turned to the spectators in the courtroom. It was kind of an open courtroom. And encouraged them to make up lies about Jesus. Hoping somehow that they would find a charge against him that would stick. And it says that for all their frenzied effort, they could not get any two people to agree on one charge. So they're trying to go through the hoops, but it's just falling apart before their hands, before their eyes. And finally, after some more effort, they were able to get two witnesses to agree that they heard Jesus say, I will destroy this temple of God that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made of hands. Matthew 26, 61. And so this farce of the trial kept on going and got more ridiculous, more ridiculous, and it was kind of the height of hypocrisy, you might say. <coughs> Jesus remained silent. The high priest, I think, in his frustration, finally made his move. This whole thing was falling apart before his eyes, you might say. He knew his time was running out. He knew that the Sanhedrin would have to explain their night-long proceedings to the other Jews and to Pilate in the morning. So finally, Matthew 26, 63, he stood and he asked Christ, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? I adjure you by the living God. Tell us whether you are the Messiah, the Son of God. See, the high priest alone had power to put someone, a defendant, under oath <coughs> before God. And under oath, the defendant was obliged to answer truthfully. And obviously, the high priest was hoping that Jesus would answer this awesome question by saying yes. If Christ confessed that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, he would be, in effect, saying that he was deity, that he was God himself. 
the Jewish leaders of the day refused to believe that Jesus was anything more than a peasant. They didn't trust him as their Messiah. <coughs> and so Christ came to the Messiah, the Son of God. If Christ claimed to be the Messiah, the Son of God, they would charge him with obvious blasphemy. And with this great dignity, the Bible says, and courage, he answered them in Mark 26, or Matthew 26, 64. I am. It is, of you, it is as you have said. I am. Furthermore, I say to all of you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming upon the clouds of heaven. Some say that Jesus' response to the high priest was one of the greatest moments in Jesus Christ's life here on earth. You look at the response of the high priest. Then the high priest rent his garments, it says, saying that he spoke blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Behold, you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and they said, he deserves death. And they all condemned him as worthy of death. So you have to understand, by ripping his garment, the high priest was expressing a real amount of disgust, of anger at what he had just heard. Christ, he felt, committed the ultimate sin, a sin which deserved punishment by death. And the whole Sanhedrin, they agreed. And so they called for the death of Christ. And then as it continues there in Matthew 26, 67, it gets uglier. It says, Then some began to spit in his face. This is all against Jewish law, against Jewish tradition. You're not allowed to treat a prisoner this way. And they struck him, in the, struck him with their fists. And the men who were holding Jesus began to mock him. And when they had blindfolded him, they kept slapping him in his face and asking, saying, Prophesy! Prophesy to us, you Messiah! Who is it that struck you? And many other things they kept saying blasphemously against him. See, for the first time since Christ's arrest, the temple guards and the soldiers felt the liberty to just kind of beat this guy up, to abuse him. At last, they could release their pent-up brutality on Jesus. And they began spitting on him. I don't know if you've ever been spit on, but it's not a very nice thing. Very humiliating. Then they carried their, their violence even further and they began to punch him in the face over and over again. Kind of like a cruel version of blind man's bluff. And they slapped him around until his face was probably covered with blood and sweat and spit. And that was only the beginning of this whole trial, this mock trial that, that went on. See, we need to see that Christ did all this and He did it for us. He went through this with incredible power, with incredible poise, with incredible patience. And it was the love of Christ that drew Him to that. It was His love for us. So now it's probably Friday about 2 a.m. I don't think anybody had ever spent a longer night than Jesus Christ throughout His betrayal, His arrest and the trials, more of which were to come. You think that God Himself who would become man would suffer such cruelties and injustices and voluntarily do so at the hands of evil men. That's just unbelievable to me. And yet He did it all for you. He did it all for me. 
But something else is almost unbelievable. When Christ was suffering in the Sanhedrin's court, his disciple, Peter, we know the story, was outside and failing him disastrously by denying I kind of want to focus on this a little bit this morning and answer some questions for us. Who was this Peter? You have to understand who Peter was before you can kind of put this all into the, the picture of, of where we're going here. Um, there's probably no other person more popular in the gospel accounts than Simon Peter. One person describes him as a two-fisted, rugged, volatile, unpredictable, strong-willed, blustering, and courageous leader. He had been called the mouth of the disciples. For he took it upon himself the role of spokesman for that group. And usually when he opened his mouth, unfortunately he inserted his foot. Just seems what happens. It seems that whenever anybody, whenever something very important was happening in Christ's life, who was there? It was Peter. Remember, he made the first declaration at Caesarea Philippi that Christ was the Messiah. He witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus and even walked on the water for a couple seconds anyway. There's no question that Peter loved Jesus Christ very much. Nor is there any question that obviously Christ had a profound impact on Peter's life. Peter was a changed man when he met Christ. See, that's what happens when you meet Christ. You change. You don't go on business as usual. You change. Something happens in your life. The Bible calls it transformation. See, a lot of times we think of Christianity as this religion that we just kind of add to what we're doing and we kind of go on with life, doing our own thing. That's not the case. Everyone that Christ came into contact with throughout the Gospels, if they chose, yielded their life to Christ, their life was changed. It was transformed. They weren't the same person they used to be. Something was new. Something was fresh about them. For the first time, they could live lives that were pleasing to God. Doesn't seem any evidence at all that Peter was religious before he met Christ. <coughs> he evidently was probably too busy with his fishing business and getting involved in speculation about the Messiah, whatever. But it's interesting that fortunately for Peter, his brother Andrew began to follow John the Baptist. You know the story. And it was John the Baptist who introduced Andrew, Peter's brother, to Jesus. In John chapter 1, verses 40 to 42, we read this. It says, One of the two who heard John speak and follow him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon, and he said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is trans translated means Peter. This was a truly dramatic meeting between Jesus and Peter. The Gospel tells us there that Christ stood and intently gazed at Simon Peter. This is the Son of God, the Messiah. And finally, Christ announced that he wanted to call Peter a new name. See, that's what happens when you come to Christ. God gives us a new name. He makes us a whole new person. He said to him, You are Simon, son of John, but now you will call, be called Cephas, which is translated means Peter. And back in Christ's day, names really meant a lot, you might say. And Simon probably had quite a reputation up to this point. No doubt he was unpredictable. 
He was probably unreliable. And almost everyone who knew him was aware of this. But Jesus saw something in Simon Peter that maybe others couldn't see. And he saw something that he wanted to do through this man. And he knew that Simon could become stable, could become trustworthy. And so he changed Simon's name to Peter, (coughs) which means rock. And Jesus knew that someday Peter would become a rock, a solid and dependable leader. Someday. He was sold out to Christ. He proved how important he thought Christ was in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Listen to this. Now, it came about that while they, the multitude were pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the, by the lake and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake. But the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and he asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the multitudes from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but at your bidding, I'll let down the nets. So when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. And they signaled to their partners in the other boats for them to come and help them. And they came and they filled the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For amazement has seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also James and John and the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed him. See, there's no doubt that Peter was wholeheartedly committed to Christ. He left everything he had. Can you imagine going home today and over your lunch... God speaks to your heart and says, you know what, I want you tomorrow to go into your job on Monday, quit your job. I want you to sell your house. I want you to leave everything. And I want you to go to India and become a missionary. Or Africa and become a missionary. Anywhere and become a missionary. Can you imagine what kind of trust that would take to undergo such a thing, to leave your livelihood, to leave everything that you know that's common to you and comfortable and to do what God has commanded you to do. Peter wholeheartedly trusted Christ. We don't give him that enough. He was also kind of a daredevil, you might say, for, for Jesus. In Matthew fourteen twenty two. there's another story about Peter. It says, and immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. And while he sent the multitudes away, after he had sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already many steady away from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking upon the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were frightened. And they said, is it a ghost? And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and he said, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. 
And he said, well, come on. And Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and came toward Jesus. I mean, just rationally, that doesn't make any sense. But seeing the wind, he became afraid and he began to sink and he cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stepped, stretched out his hand and he took hold of him and he said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got back in the boat, the wind stopped. See, it's hard to believe that a person who loved Christ so much could come to a point in their life where they would deny him so bitterly as we're about to see at a very critical time in his life. You see that when Peter was walking on the water there, he was looking at Christ, and it says that all of a sudden he was kind of distracted by the waves and by the wind and everything around him. And immediately, what happened? As soon as he took his eyes off the Lord, he began to sink. He began to go under. Can you imagine walking on the water without going under the water? In the middle of a storm? I mean, it's just amazing. And yet, there's a principle here that I think that we have to see, that when we put our confidence in our own strength, we're always going to fail. We're always going to fail. And that's what Jesus says here. He says, why did you doubt? Whenever we try to do things our own way, whenever we try to do things in our own strength, inevitably, that's going to lead to some form of failure. It's not going to be honoring to Christ. Well, Peter was strong in many ways. Obviously, he had some weaknesses. It seems that Peter tended to have a high view of his own strength. And he was probably one of the most strong-willed disciples that there was. And yet, to understand that, or to understand how weak he actually could become, you have to understand where he came from. Peter was far too self-confident he failed to see just how much he needed Christ's power, how much he needed Christ's power in every situation. See, you know what? I don't know about you, but that's not any different than you or I. So many times we get going in life and we think, oh, I'm doing pretty good, feeling pretty good, whatever. Then all of a sudden something hits you right in the face. And rather than cry out to God, we try to muscle our way through it. We try to pick ourselves back up and get back on it. He was far too self-confident, but he also un underestimated, I believe, the power of Satan. The Gospel reveals several times the wrong attitudes that, that, that Peter had. In Matthew 16, verses 21 to 24, we see Peter letting his weakness show once again. He says, From that time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer many things from the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and he would ultimately be killed and he'd be raised up on the third day. And Peter looked, took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it. This shall never happen to you. Can you imagine rebuking God? Can you imagine God saying, Thus saith the Lord, and you're saying, Nuh-uh, it ain't going to happen that way. Sorry. And it got so bad that Jesus turned to Peter and He said, Get me, get thee behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. 
Then Jesus looked at the disciples and he said, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. In other words, Peter, it's not about what you think. It's not about what your plan is. It's not about what you want to do anymore. See, that's what the Christian life is all about. It's about giving up your rights. We don't like to hear that. We don't like to experience that. I mean, it's hard for me even to be driving in a car and, and be sitting in the passenger seat or, God forbid, in the back seat. You know, I mean, I'm giving up my rights to the wheel. That's a big deal for me. And it's also, I'll say this, it's a big deal for the people, if I'm driving, to, 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 to yield to me. I understand that aspect of it too. But, you know, that's such an important thing. And yet in every area of our life, we want to hold on to everything and we want to have everything planned out to the T. And then, you know, we got our retirement planned out. We got everything just planned right out. And where is God in all that? Maybe God's tapping you on the shoulder saying, hey, you know what? I don't want you to be focused on that right now. I want you to be focused on what I want you to do. I want you to be focused on the gifts that I've entrusted to you that you are not using for me at this time. For whatever reason, you, you, you've set them on the shelf. God wants us to trust Him in every area, not to trust ourselves. And Peter was trusting himself. He was very self-willed. He continued to make these wild and unrealistic statements about what he would do and what he wouldn't do for Jesus. A little later on in Matthew 26, verses 33, he says, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, not I, Lord, I will never be made to stumble. <laughs> Can you hear the arrogance of that statement? It's like a brother coming up to you and saying, oh, you know what, I had kind of a bad week last week and I fell to this sin in my life and you know, it's just been something that's been troubling me and I wanted to confess it to the Lord and to another brother for accountability. And you go, oh, that's too bad. I never deal with that sin. I would never do that. You, gotta be, you actually did that? I mean, that's what this is sounding like here. Jesus said to him, Verily I say to you that today, during this night, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter continues, even more vehemently it says, even if I must die with you, I will not at all deny you. Like I said, I think in our Wednesday night Bible study, or maybe it was last week, I don't know, but we get on Peter a lot, but it says right there at the end, of that passage, and in like manner all also spoke all the apostles. We get on Peter's case because he's the outspoken one, but they're all be, behind Peter saying, "Yeah, right on. We're not, you know, we're not going to deny you. What are you talking about?" He had a tendency to speak without thinking. Some of us have that problem on occasion. And he reacted to Christ's prediction. He reacted immediately and emphatically by contradicting the Son of Man. Now, does that mean he didn't love Christ? No, he loved Christ. Does that mean he wasn't committed to Christ? He was totally committed to Christ. But he failed to understand his own weaknesses. And here's Peter making this horrible blunder in front of the whole group. And they're kind of just going along with it. He was far too sure of himself.
He even asserted others would deny him, but I wouldn't. Others would fail, but I wouldn't. See, we must be prepared to stand up for Jesus Christ publicly, even though it might cost us a great deal. When you, when you stop and you think about the events in the Garden of Gethsemane, it didn't go well for Peter. It just didn't. He was no sooner in the garden and he was trying to pray for Jesus and do the right thing. And what happens? He falls asleep. Even being awakened by the Master couldn't keep this strong-willed fisherman from falling asleep three different times as Christ agonized in the garden. Yeah, I'm there for you, Jesus. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll keep praying. You know, Falls off to sleep. Christ comes back, wakes him up. Same thing, three times. Having failed Christ in prayer, he also made another blunder in an effort to protect Christ. He tried to kill the servant of the high priest, but even messed that up. He swung the sword and missed the guy's head and or neck and cut off his ear. And Christ was willing to heal that servant's ear. It probably kept Peter and the other disciples from being killed right there on the spot. And so here you have it, right after Christ's arrest, Peter, along with the other disciples, they flee for their lives. And they leave the one that they've committed their life to. They leave the one that has done all these miracles in their, in their, in their presence. He's done all this stuff. They let him alone to face this awful ordeal all by himself. You can only imagine Peter running if you've ever been in a panic. He's probably running down this trail from the garden and there's a ton of people there, obviously. Probably several hundred. He's running down the trail past bushes, past people, everything. It's just a blur to him. He's just running, running, running. He doesn't even know what he's doing. At some point, he must stop. And he got a hold of himself and he began to think, I have to understand what's going to happen to him. I want to understand what he's going through. And he decided that he must find out the fate of the one that he loved so much. See, there's two emotions pulling at Peter, and these emotions are very common to you and I. There's the emotion of love, and there's the emotion of fear. And they're both doing a work in Peter's life right now. Because of his love for Christ, he wanted to be near him. But if he was, that, that could maybe cost his own life. And so Peter made a compromise with these two emotions by following his master and the proceedings. It says from a safe distance. Matthew twenty six fifty eight says, Peter also followed him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. See, Peter trailed behind the crowd that was following Jesus and the people who arrested him all the way to the high priest's palace. And you have to understand the makeup of this palace here. It's different than palaces we might be thinking of. It was large. probably had two stories, many rooms in it. And outside there was a courtyard, kind of a big patio. And there was a high wall that enclosed not only the courtyard, but also the palace as well. And a person could get into the courtyard only through the entrance. And usually the entrance was guarded, obviously, by the high priest servants and temple police. And apparently, from what we read in Scripture, Christ had already been led inside this palace 
and was on trial before Peter arrived at the courtyard gate. It almost looks as if Peter would be prohibited from getting any closer to Christ than the street outside. But the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verses 15 and 16, says this, And Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. So that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. So he sees Peter sitting out there. And this disciple went out and, and got Peter and brought him in. And once Peter had entered the courtyard, he began to look around. And I think he was painfully aware of his situation. Like, what am I doing here? He was alone in the crowd that was very hostile to Christ at this point. He had decided that what he would do in this trying moment, he, he, he tried to kind of fit in the best he could. Rather than using his booming voice to stand up and declare Christ's innocence, he didn't do that. Instead, he cringed with fear at the crowd of the soldiers and the onlookers and the palace servants probably afraid that they would recognize him. And he sat down around a fire with the enemies of Jesus and he tried to act as inconspicuous as possible. Have you ever been there? you ever been a believer? You've been in a situation and you've tried to act as inconspicuous as possible so you don't ruffle anybody's feathers, so you don't cause any problems. Matthew 26 said, Peter's quick... Uh, cover was quickly blown. It says, Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a certain slave girl, a certain girl, servant girl, came to him and asked, You too are with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you're talking about. And when he had gone out into the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Peter was quietly sitting by the fire hoping no one would recognize him, but his hopes were soon shattered. A servant girl who was watching the entrance of the courtyard rightly assumed that Peter was a disciple of Jesus. No doubt she wanted to show those around the fire that she was important too. So she approached Peter and she accused him of being Christ's disciple. You can imagine the surprise on Peter's face and the fear that welled up in his heart. Probably he didn't even have time to think. He reacted just in instinct. Just the fear kicked in. And he says, I don't know what you are talking about. He got up and he moved around the courtyard hoping no one else would bother him and he made his way toward the entryway, kind of working on the outskirts of this place. But instead of avoiding any more recognition, he was confronted by still another servant girl. John tells us that this servant girl had been at the garden during Christ's arrest. And she was actually probably a relative of Malchus, the guy who got his ear cut off. So you can imagine, probably not a good girl to run into. She spoke with the authority of an eyewitness. She said, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Peter felt trapped. He felt fearful, no doubt. And since he had already lied once that night, it made it easier for him to lie more intently the second time, which is the way that that goes claimed to be 
taking an oath before God, Peter said boldly, I do not know the man. But he spoke too loudly for his own good since he was from Galilee. The Galileans had a particular accent (laughs) that betrayed him. Jesus had the Galilean accent. Peter had the Galilean accent. And they said, surely you're one of them for you. Your talk gives you away. Peter was totally frustrated. He was angry at this point. And you can see that it says that he began to curse. He began to say, I do not know the man. See, sometimes we're called publicly to stand up and embrace Christ. Peter was. He failed miserably. Exactly what Christ said would happen, happened to him. And these two events took place almost simultaneously. If you can imagine this. After Peter had denied Christ three times, first of all, you hear the rooster crow. And Peter, in his head, remembered at once that Christ said, Before a cock crows, you will deny me three times. And this remembrance of Christ's word must have just penetrated his heart. But something else happened almost simultaneous to that at the same time as Peter was in that courtyard. Just after Peter's three denials, they took Christ out of the palace into the courtyard. And Luke tells us what happened in Luke 22, verses 61 and 62. It says, And the Lord turned and he looked at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word of the Lord. How he had told him, before the cock crows today, you will deny me three times. It says, and he went outside and he wept bitterly. I mean, can you imagine what Christ communicated to Peter as he looked intently at him at this tragic moment in his life? Somehow I don't think it was a look of, you're pathetic. Couldn't pray with me. You've fallen right into what I said you do. You'll never amount to nothing, Peter. Somehow I don't think it was that kind of a look. You know the kind of look I'm talking about. We give those kind of looks all the time sometimes. I think that the look that Christ gave Peter was a look of love, a look of compassion, a look of grace. It says that Peter rushed out of the courtyard and into the streets and his heart was broken. And he began to weep uncontrollably over what he had done to Jesus. I think for the next three days, Peter could easily be ranked as the saddest disciple of all of them. He had finally realized how much he had failed Christ during his time of most need. It's a good thing the story doesn't end there (laughs) because that's kind of a discouraging place to end. But the Bible says that after the resurrection that we'll be celebrating on Sunday, the Bible says that Jesus comforted and he encouraged Peter. He didn't come up to Peter and hit him with a stick. He didn't come up to Peter and say, gee, where were you? Yeah, last time I'm going to, you know, we got my back, yeah, right, you know. I mean, he didn't say any of that. Christ responded in a very, very gracious, loving way to Peter. 
See, that's a, I think that's a model for us sometimes. Sometimes people leave us down. They let us down. They do things that are just so out of character, whatever it might be. And it's so easy just to condemn somebody over that. But what would Christ do? I think Christ would have compassion. Christ would have grace. We all fail Christ in one way or another. It's not just Peter. But Jesus came along, Christ, after the resurrection. He comforted him. He encouraged him. And and Peter went on to do incredible things for Christ. Because he wasn't relying on himself anymore. He's relying on the strength that only Christ can give. Became one of the greatest spokesmen for Christ in history. I pray that as we look at this, this time this morning, that we don't leave here thinking that we serve a God who is just up there in heaven condemning us constantly. He knows exactly what we're going to do. He knows how we're going to do it. He knows the attitude we're going to have. He knows the sin we're going to fall into. He knows all of that. And the Bible says that even while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's such an important truth. Because you know what? At at some point, you're going to have to face Christ. Either you're going to face Christ as your Savior now, or ultimately you will face Him as the Judge, the Lord and Master. But sooner or later, you will be called before Him to face Him for your sin. And for all those outside of Christ, those who have yet to put their faith, their trust in what Christ has done for them, there's no hope. You can't look at your good bag of tricks and say, well, gee, I did this, I did It's not going to matter. The Bible says they're like filthy rags for somebody who doesn't know Christ. It's not going to matter that day what you've done with your life, how much you gave to the church, how often you went to the church. The Bible says clearly there are people who are going to actually stand before Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, haven't I done this? Haven't I done that? And he says something very interesting. He says to them, depart from me, I never knew you. They're deceived. They never had a relationship with Christ. See, it's not a matter of having a relationship and walking away from it, because if that were the case, when they came up to Jesus and said, Lord, Lord, have we not? He would have said, hey, I knew you once, but now I don't. He didn't say that. He made a very demonstrative statement. I never knew you, ever. It just shows us that people like Peter, like the other disciples, can do a lot of good works before God and totally miss it. Totally goes over their head. 